0: Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. We began a couple of weeks ago working through Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, down through the end of the chapter in verse 32, and talked about our new life in Christ. And that theme continues now, down through this chapter, and really through the beginning of chapter 6. Paul's thought, very simply, is that those of us who have been restored in Christ, who were formerly children of wrath and sons of disobedience, and who held a great debt of sin to our Creator, have been reconciled to the Father by the Son, our sins are. Have been wiped away, and we have been granted the righteousness of Jesus. And He is making us into a new humanity, a temple for His dwelling, Jews and Gentiles alike, all those who place their faith in Jesus. And then in chapters 4 through 6, and again, especially starting in verse 17 of chapter 4, we find the implications of such a gift. If we are recipients of this grace, having formerly been the enemies of God and now being made His sons and daughters, a new humanity, a temple for His dwelling, this should have massive implications for the way that we live. The beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, demonstrate how we are to be a body collectively, collaboratively, mutually growing together up into maturity in Christ. We are not left to ourselves. We are not left to just bootstrap it. Jesus is still active. Jesus is still ministering to us and through us. In other words, Jesus calls us to unified maturity and then he supplies what we need that that might come to pass. So from beginning to end, Jesus is in salvation. He and the Father agreed before the foundation of the world that they would save rebels, you and me. Then he died and was raised to new life. And the application of His righteousness comes to us exclusively by faith, which in and of itself is a gift. We cannot earn it, as Paul taught us in Ephesians chapter 2. But it doesn't just stop there at conversion or justification. Jesus still ministers to us. Jesus is saving us, and one day will fully save us. One day we will be fully new. And yet, in the here and now, we are being made new degree by degree. And so we can say that we are not who we once were, thanks be to God, but we are not yet who we want to be. And so the great task of the people of God is to find their identity in what God has said about them. The justification that is applied to the hearts of God's people is a legal declaration. It is God's word. The righteousness of Jesus received by faith causes God the Father to declare us righteous in Christ. So that is is God's word for us. And yet... Despite our justification, despite the fact that, that guilt has been removed, despite the fact that, that condemnation is now no longer our destiny, there is still a lot of changing that needs to go on. We covered that in some detail at the end of chapter 4 last week. We should be honest people. We should be very careful with our anger to make sure that it doesn't go off the rails, but, but rather to be people of mercy. We should not be those who covet and hoard things to ourselves, abusing others for what they have, but rather sharing what we have. We are to speak words of grace rather than words that harm. We are to yield and submit to the Spirit rather than living independently as though we are our own gods. We are not to allow bitterness to take over and to lead to all sorts of sin, but rather to have hearts of kindness that show up in things like tenderheartedness and forgiveness. And the measure of forgiveness that we must forgive according to is the measure of forgiveness by which we have been saved. Christ has forgiven us. So on the heels of that, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, and of course, as most of you know, Paul did not write with chapter numbers and verse numbers. The end of chapter 4 flowed very cohesively into the beginning of what we believed to be chapter 5. And so really, verses 1 through 2 of chapter 5 come right on the heels logically and beautifully of chapter 4, verse 32. And so Paul says to the Ephesian church, we are to forgive one another as God and Christ forgave us. And then he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We will focus our time together today on these two verses. These two verses are really a summation of what Paul has said so far. We are to be people that love God and in particular in these two verses, love others. What is the standard of our love? Objectively, the standard of our love is the love of God shown to us in Christ and if you think about it, we could say that not being liars, being merciful rather than angry, sharing rather than stealing, blessing rather than cursing, and so forth and so on. We could, we could sum all of that up by saying, love. And as we go then down further through chapter 5, where we learn that we are not to be involved in sexual immorality or covetousness or filthiness but rather to walk as children of light. And then we'll get into this section about how wives are to submit to and respect their husbands, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and children are to obey their parents in everything. That all these things could be summed up with this one command, this one exhortation. Love. I guess we could say at the outset together of our time, That it's possible to externally do some of these things. To on the surface not lie. To on the surface not be overcome with anger. Externally to not steal anything, but to share some of our resources. To not have sexual immorality named among us. To seemingly walk as children of light. To on the surface submit to our husbands. To... All who are watching look as though we are loving our wives. As far as anyone is concerned, children can obey their parents. But, but if these things are not born out of hearts of love, they are not pleasing to God, they in the end are not acts of worship. And if human nature is anything, it's a reminder that such behaviors cannot be maintained without a heart of love. And even more importantly, a heart of love that draws its power and its trajectory from ultimate love. So we just reason backwards, so now let's reason forward. God created the world in love. It's not monochrome. Especially now in spring, and as I often joke with you, what better place is there to be than Ohio in spring? We've come out of a nasty, dreary, gray winter, and now what's happening? The leaves are out. The flowers are blooming. The birds are singing. Creation isn't monochrome. Creation isn't dreary and dull. Creation is gorgeous. And why did God do that? He could have made it like that. It could have been flat pray, but God did not make it that way. He made it to be an environment that we could see his beauty and enjoy him. He created this world to show us his love. But even more so, he created a world that if it were to have any hope of rescue, because he knew full well it would fall into sin, love would have to be the final word. Which is why in chapter 1, Paul clarifies that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God knew what would happen, but he made a remedy. A covenant between himself and the Son. Wherein some of these rebels, deserving of his wrath, would be rescued. That, my friends, demonstrates to us more than trees and birds and beauty, love. God made the world to be an arena in which the drama of his love would be displayed. And then as he draws us to himself with cords of love, granting us faith to receive the righteousness of his son, declaring us justified in the son, accepting us in the beloved, he gives us hearts of love that draw their conclusions and their trajectory And power from the love of the Son shown to us through his cross and his empty tomb. And now, having been transformed and being transformed, we have the capacity and yes, the desire to love others. So, as we sometimes say around here, there is a great axis, A-X-I-S, in the story of redemption. Our story. Humanity's story. Vertically, God has loved us through His Son. But horizontally now, we who have been rescued, restored to God, are to love others. They intersect. And there is no true gospel. There is no gospel transformation if we are not recognizing that such love poured out on us sovereignly and graciously without reserve should lead us to not only love God back vertically but then horizontally as well. It is it's cruciform in shape perhaps by gracious providential design. The shape of love is like the cross. God has loved us that we might not only love him to return but love others. And so right here in the middle of Paul's exhortation to put off the old man. And its ways, and to put on the new man and its ways, he says, we are to love as God has loved us. The language of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, is very familial. It's, it's family language. I joked with you last week that you weren't going to get a Mother's Day sermon because um, we just don't really pay attention to every single holiday in our sermon time. Otherwise, we'd always be doing patriotic sermons and work sermons and Christmas sermons and all that kind of stuff. So we usually spend time around Easter and Christmas and dedicate, like, Advent and Easter to some special teaching time. But the other holidays kind of get missed. But we try to bring them up and and honor people uh, during those particular holidays. So we will do that today, and especially at the end, as I said to you earlier, we want to honor our moms. But if you think about it, this text, really, with its family language, is a perfect Mother's Day sermon even though it's not a Mother's Day sermon. The family language of this text demonstrates that, that when you raise kids, when you have family members, they, they learn to do the things you do. When I was a kid, my dad was my hero. I don't even know if you would have caught me at nine years old or so and asked me who your hero was if I would have said that. I'm sure I would have said Pete Rose. Pete Rose was my hero growing up. Um, I would sit, stand outside in my front yard in my Pete Rose jersey and my white, you know, pants and my little metal bat that my dad bought at a yard sale, and and I would hit balls across the yard and go chase them and you know play like one on me baseball. But um, but but I did. I idolized my dad looking back. My dad was a pastor, and I did the things he did. I remember we would always be really early for services, and my dad was always kind of involved in everything and. So he would always check, like, audiovisual stuff before the service, and I remember I'd follow him around and do the same thing he did. I grew up in a traditional Baptist church where the pastors sat up on the platform. Did you guys ever grow up in a church like that? They, they were kind of like the kings up there, you know? They didn't wear robes or anything, but, but um, they had their own little seats, and it was their seat, and no one ever sat in my dad's seat. And he had a little white phone, and it had, like, eight buttons on it. And the different eight buttons reach different things like the the sound guy and the ushers in the lobby. And so um, my dad occasionally during the service, he always had his legs crossed, I remember. He would sit back and occasionally you'd see him pick up the phone and he'd like push number five. And then you'd see the sound guy pick up, you know, his phone. And I'm sure he was irritated about something and they were correcting it. So I used to do that. Before the services, I'd go sit in my dad's seat and I'd cross my legs and I'd pick up the white phone and I'd push number five. I loved to do the things he did. I read the books he read. My dad read Louis L'Amour books. You guys ever read those books growing up? Cowboy books where there's a guy who can outdraw anybody but gets the girl in the end. My dad collected knives. I collected knives. My dad loved the mountains. I learned to love the mountains. I mimicked him in so many ways. As I got older, uh, I learned to love people. My dad was a faithful shepherd. He used to take me to the hospital with him and pray with sick people. He used to let me read the scriptures to them. As I got older, he let me preach. There's, there's sermon tapes out there of when I was 16. They're terrible. But he gave me a chance to mimic him and to learn. We're seeing this in our family now. We have two biological sons and two sons that are not biological that have been in our family for nine months. And our two non-biological kids are learning to do Davis stuff. Not too long ago, we were coming back from grader's. We have a Yukon, because we now we have tons of kids, and so it's like this cavernous vehicle that's full of noise all the time and just drives us crazy. And so um, sometimes, um, sharply, I will tell them to be quiet for like an extended period of time. And so the other night, we were coming home from graders, and Zeke, who was three at the time, said in a very thick African accent, zip it, because his brothers are being loud. I don't know where he heard that. I'm sure that was from Whitney. His newest favorite phrase is, what the heck, also in a thick African accent, which he learned from his oldest brother. They're learning to be Davises because they live with us now. I often hear my, ma, my wife, is, this is now a Mother's Day sort of implication, I often hear my wife talk about how her mom raised her. She taught her to be a lady. My mother-in-law taught my wife how to care for a husband and her children to lay her life down for her friends. Our moms did that for us. I can think back on my mom who tirelessly gave of herself to us all the time. You are shaping people all the time, and in particular now, because it's Mother's Day, as you lead your lives in front of your children, moms, grandmothers, they're watching you. They're mimicking you. They walk the way you walk. They talk the way you talk. And more fundamentally, they believe the things you believe. They treasure the things that you treasure. They value the things that they value. And insofar as your life points to the most treasured one, the most valuable one, to Jesus, by God's grace, they will learn to treasure and value him too. And of course... In a more cosmic sense, this is the way that God's children are with him. God has proven himself to be a God of love and a God of grace. And and most particularly, he has shown that to us in his son. So let's explore this to some degree in verses 1 through 2. We have been restored to our creator and father that we might reflect his holy character. That's what verse 1 is teaching us. Therefore... In keeping with the fact that we have been forgiven in Christ, chapter 4, verse 32, therefore we are to be imitators of God. As beloved children, there's family bonds here. And this is really critical, and I want us to see this. Paul is not just calling the Ephesian church to moral transformation. This is not just another cult in Ephesus that has its own moral code. Paul is not just telling them to be good people. Our children are in this school district, which we love and we value and we're so thankful for. We spend a lot of time with our neighbors, especially on baseball and soccer fields. We've gotten to know a lot of people and have good friends in our community. And our purpose in that is to get to know them and by God's grace, have opportunities to declare Christ to them? I suppose that if I were to ask most of my friends who really don't believe the gospel at all, what do you want your children to be? They want their children, I'm sure, to be honest, to be kind, to be good, to be model citizens. But the truth of the matter is, where's the standard? It's man-made, I mean, who gets to decide what's good? Who gets to decide what is kind? Who gets to decide what is light versus darkness? But as the people of God, we have a model. It's written down in His Word and it's embodied in the person of Jesus. And therefore, we know. We know what is right and wrong. And, and more than that, more than just knowing, more than having a law that we can look to for, for guidance, for direction we have been given hearts that we might obey that law. And that's the beauty of the new covenant. As the prophets prophesied to Israel, they said that one day there would come a new covenant where God would take away hearts of stone, replacing them with hearts of flesh. And not only this, he would take his law and he would etch it on that new heart of flesh. And not only that, he would give them his spirit that would not only compel them to obedience, but enable it. And for those of us who have received Christ That has happened for us. We've been brought into a new covenant with God where our hardened hearts have been taken away. And rather than the law condemning us and scaring us and being distasteful to us, rather it has been etched on our very hearts and God has given us himself, taking up residence in us through his spirit, enabling us and compelling us, giving beauty to our eyes as we see the law that we might love God and love others because this was the purpose of the law. So not only do we have a standard to be imitators of God, but we've been made beloved children. We're not just subjects to whom we're given a law that we cannot and don't want to obey. We are children who now have a new family and a new family standard, and we walk according to. it. To be imitators of the one who has not only given us the law, but given us hearts that want to obey them. That's what Paul's saying. Why shouldn't we lie? Why shouldn't we be angry? Why shouldn't we steal? Why shouldn't we curse? Why shouldn't we resist the Spirit? Why shouldn't we be bitter? Because God's not like that. But rather than just calling us to these tasteless, lifeless, impossible actions, He has called us to new life a new life that we now treasure, that we want to pursue, and we can. Because we're not just slaves. We're not just distant image bearers. We've been brought back into his family. We are seated in the heavenly places. We are beloved children. We have been restored to our Creator and Father that we might reflect his holy character. This, as we often say, is the design of redemption, my friends. We were not restored to our Creator and Father so we could do whatever we want. We were not restored from our, to our Creator and Father so that we have this sort of blank check of forgiveness so we can do whatever we want. Rather, rather, we have been restored that we might worship. Turn with me, please, to 1 John chapter 4. I will not <clears throat> read for us the entire section, verses 7 through 21, but I do commend this section to you as you hopefully will take some time to review what we are learning together today. The apostle says in verse 7 of his first epistle in chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. How do we know that we are born of God if we love? Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is the one attribute of God in the scriptures that God is said to be. In other words, it's such, an, it's such a substantial part of his character that you could say God is love. God has made the world to highlight His love. God has not made the world primarily to highlight His justice or His righteousness, though He, though he does highlight those things. The story of the Bible, the story of humanity, when it's all wrapped up and God puts a nice bow on it, puts a period at the end, what will it declare to us? Above all, even above justice, even above righteousness, That God is love. Because against the backdrop of God's justice and his righteousness, his love shines. God is love. And those that are born of God, as we just saw in verse 7 of 1 John 4, love. That's who we are to be. Turn with me now to Colossians chapter 3. What happens to those who are born of God Well, we become part of a family. Our family identity changes, and our behavior and character changes along with it. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And prior to this, in verse 10, what does he say? We have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We have a new creator. We're brought back to him. We are brought back to our father. And we are being transformed. And therefore, Paul can say in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive And he wraps it up in verse 14 by saying, Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Those of us who are recipients of this new family identity, who have been restored to our creator, how are we to live? What is to characterize us? We are to live in love. And as we see back in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, we will therefore imitate God. If God is love and we walk in love, we will imitate God. How has God most clearly demonstrated his love? Well, that's what verse 2 is about. We have been rescued by our Lord and Savior that we might love others as he loved. God loved when he made the trees and the birds. God loved when he made a covenant with his son to rescue humanity. But the application of that came at Jesus' incarnation. When he took on the frailty of human flesh and lived among the sons of Adam, and then laid down his life, murdered by the very ones he came to save, raised by the Father, restored to perfect fellowship with the Father, interceding for his people. The person and work of Jesus, wherein he sacrificed himself for us to restore us to God, this is the clearest expression of God's love for us. This means that love is characterized by sacrifice. R- real love is characterized by sacrifice. Those of us who are married know this. It's, it's wrapped up in our vows. And one way or another, especially if you use the traditional old Anglican common book of prayer vows in your ceremony, said this at the outset. I, Lee, take you, Whitney, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others unto death. If you think about it, that's kind of morbid language, right? You know, like you're 22 or whatever, you're, you're in a size like 32 pant, right? And you're in a nice coat and, and your wife's in her beautiful white dress and you're holding hands and you think you have the world by the tail but if you think about it the vows talk about sacrifice death It doesn't even i mean if you, if you pause for a minute and thought about it you might think well we should have like happier vows like we're gonna go to late night movies and we're gonna like hang out and eat ice cream and we're gonna do fun stuff that's not the vows at the outset you talk about sacrifice and you're married for a while, and you have kids, and then you learn about sacrifice for real. Mothers, you know about sacrifice. You lay your lives down every day for your kids, very often with little recognition or gratitude, right? It's not about that, because if putting a hot meal on the table was only conditioned upon the flowing of thanks, no one would eat. If wearing clean clothes to school was was only brought about if your children recognized that you stayed up late washing and drying and maybe folding those clothes, no one would wear clean clothes to school. You lay down your lives each day for your children. Motherhood is about sacrifice. So we honor mothers on such a day because they embody godly love when they lay their lives down for their children. We are to do this as a church. Paul wrote this in the context of a church family. The church in Ephesus was to love this way. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, when Christ addresses through the apostle John the church in Ephesus, because the book of Revelation would have been sent to them as a letter, He praised them for their doctrinal accuracy, but he said he had something against them. Do you remember what that was? They had left their first love, John says. What does that mean? Scholars have debated over that. It, It might mean that they had stopped loving God like they should. It might mean that they had stopped loving each other like they should. And to those two options, I think the answer is yes. When love of God decreases, love for others decreases too. And the decades that fell between Paul's writing the book of Ephesians and John writing to the church in Ephesus, the book of Revelation, they had stopped loving like they should. Which means that this is not easy. It is not once heard and then put on. It is something that must be put on all the time in families and in this family. It's hard to love, because guess what? We all sin. What happens when you put sinners together? There's going to be damage. Tearing, biting, hurting, disillusionment, hurt feelings, misplaced affections, unmet, unfulfilled dreams. That's what happens when you put sinful people together. We see that in our marriages, we see that with our kids, and we certainly see it in our church families. At the end of the day, so much of our struggles with our churches is relational at the core. What is Paul saying? Walk in love. This must characterize you. And what is the measure of our love? The way Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I love spring and summertime in my neighborhood because my neighbors grill a lot. In fact, my neighbor just next door to me has come up with a new dry rub for his chicken wings, which he seems to cook every night and make me salivate. Um, I love the aroma of of meat grilling. Israel knew what this was like because they sacrificed millions upon millions upon millions of, of animals. If you would have been around Jerusalem, particularly during the feast times, you would have smelled the burning flesh of animals all the time. And on the surface, that sounds kind of nasty until you remember that whenever you smell meat being grilled, it smells really good, doesn't it? God is angry at sin. Justifiably so, because God is righteous and holy and cannot fellowship with sin or sinners. And all those sacrifices of the Old Testament, century upon century, millions upon millions of lambs and oxen and so forth. All of those sacrifices, as they came up into the nostrils of God, were reminders that His wrath would be appeased one day in the perfect sacrifice of His Son, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. And when the Son allowed Himself to be nailed to that cursed tree, Suspended between heaven and earth, between God and man, the wrath of God was appeased. The aroma of the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God appeased the wrath of God and he was pleased and he dispensed his mercy. And that's why you and I sit together today trusting in the gospel. And therefore, the measure of the sacrifice of God, that God, who was the angry justifiably angry creator against his fallen rebellious creatures would die to renew them to himself that jesus the beloved son of god would become our substitute it defies reason but as josh prayed earlier jesus died as our substitute to save us from the wrath of god This is the measure of the sacrifice of God, and this is to be the measure of our love. Our love is cross-shaped. Our love is cruciform. Our love is going to cost us. This has always been the way that God has looked at the world, though. Let's look together at a few passages so we can see this. Let's turn together to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll do this briefly, but I want you to be able to see how this theme of Love for God and love for others. God's love for us and our love for others is really the story of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, this is the great confession of Israel that even to this day, Orthodox Jews recite. Verse 1, Moses records, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear The Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes, his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The declaration that God is the one true God. And God goes on to say to Moses, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And look with me, please, in Leviticus chapter 19. So we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that the chief responsibility of mankind, of God's covenant people, is to love God. But there's more to it than just that. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9. Moses tells the people, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Sounds like Ephesians 4, right? Don't steal, but work hard and share. Verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor. Or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Look in verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What was Israel's responsibility? to love God and to love people. And though we will not take time to turn here in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, that's really what the Ten Commandments are about. The first four, love God vertically. Commandments 5 through 10, horizontally, love each other. The Ten Commandments are about loving God and loving people. It's not some code meant to beat us down. It's a code that demonstrates to us the very heart of God, that we are to love Him and to love love others. And then turn with me, please, to Matthew 22. Sometimes it's good for us to turn together to these various passages to teach you the discipline of tracing these themes throughout the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, verses that are familiar to many of you, the Pharisees hear that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence as they sought to trip him up. So they gathered together to ask him questions. One of them, verse 35, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Even back then, lawyers could be squirrely. No offense to my brothers who are here as lawyers today. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the Lord? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Good, right? Pharisees believe that. But Jesus is really driving at the second portion because the Pharisees love themselves so much. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. In other words, this is the theme of the scriptures. Love God and love people. And if you don't love people, you don't love God, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. Turn with me, please, to Romans 13. The apostle takes chapters 1 through 11 to declare to them how they've been rescued in Christ, and then chapters 12 through 16 to tease out the implications of that. And the heart of that, in many ways, is in verses 8 through 10 of Romans 13. How should we live, those of us rescued in Christ? Owe no one anything, Romans 13, 8, except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's why James can say in the 8th verse of his 2nd chapter, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And in First John chapter 3, verses 16-18, through 18, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Those of us who have experienced the grace of the gospel, restoration to our Creator, Reconciliation to our Father through Jesus Christ, the Son, this fragrant sacrifice by which God's wrath was appeased and he delighted in dispensing his mercy on us, conversely. How should we therefore live? We should lead lives of love consistently. And not just the theory of love, not just the idea of love, but to really love, love that that costs us. Love that looks like Jesus' love. We have been restored to our Creator and Father that we might reflect His holy character, in particular, His holy love. How has He most clearly demonstrated this to us? How has He proven His love? He's rescued us through our Lord and Savior. For what purpose? That we might love others sacrificially as He loved. How do we apply this? Two things. First, We have the responsibility mutually to put on hearts and acts of love and to put off those things contrary to love. In other words, we have the responsibility to to help each other fight sin, fight the things that are contrary to love, the things that that are just self-seeking, self-promoting, to recognize those things for what they are, to put them off and instead to put on acts of love. All of us have that responsibility. As I said to you earlier, these verses, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, were written to a church. They were to recognize their tendency to not love mutually, to fight sin mutually, and to love mutually. What will that cost you? It'll cost you your life. But such a life regained will lead to love and joy, the best life you could ever conceive of. You will become less central. Your desires and dreams will change, but your heart will be full. And that's why we are bound together as a church. This is hard, but we are not alone. And secondly, and lastly, before we close, such a community trusting and transforming trusting Jesus and transforming by his grace is countercultural beautiful and compelling Jesus says to the disciples as he's washing their feet in John 13 right before he's arrested and crucified by this will all men know that you are my disciples by the way that you love each other when you live this way it doesn't look like the world's love when you live this way it's beautiful it's, and it's compelling. Here is a, a missional component that I think comes out of this text. Some way and somehow, you should love so clearly and so evidently that people around you who don't know Jesus, who have not submitted to what he has done, they should see it. This means you should invite people into this community people who, who don't know Jesus, that they might see it. You should have them into your home. And maybe, maybe rather than just having them alone into your home, you should have some of your Christian friends come in, that they can see what it looks like to have such a, a cultural kind of difference. It should be that in your marriages and, and your child-rearing people see it, but it, it should be in your church community too. So how might you creatively bring those worlds together? If you don't have much of a world outside of your Christian world, it's, it's time to start prayerfully working on that and then prayerfully thinking about how you can bring those two worlds together by the grace of the Spirit That those who don't know real love because they don't know the love of Jesus and its implications worked out in transforming hearts of worshipers. They need to see that because they don't know what it looks like. Every good story, every great book, every great movie, even, even the ones about military heroes and, and spies, there's always, there's always a love component, isn't there? I mean, they're not just out you know, killing the Soviets. They're getting the girl too, right? They're not just going on a quest. They get the princess. The story of love is bound up in all of our stories. And, and what is the greatest love story? That God, through his Son, has loved a wayward, rebellious world, has reconciled it to himself through deep sacrifice and loss, and then dispenses his love on them throughout their lives into eternity, and then transforms them that they might love that way too. That's the ultimate love story. And people need to see it, and they need to hear it. And we know it, and we can't bottle it up. So let us fight together fight sin, fighting to love, not fighting each other, but fighting to love one another, doing it passionately and and patiently, for it's a long, hard road. And may this love spill out of these walls to others who desperately need it. May God be gracious to transform us, appreciating and being thankful for his love, and then empowered by it to love each other in such a countercultural, beautiful, and compelling way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now I pray that you will take these words through your spirit and write them on our hearts. And I pray that you will transform our minds and our affections. That we might bring you the worship that you are due for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of many near and far. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.